I uh, don't have any leading to give some kind of opening word about anything. So I should not try to think up something. That's not a good idea. So why don't I begin with the questions that are here. Uh, Nine questions. Some of them you'll see are um, they're quite challenging, but don't hesitate to write out a question. And we don't do handwriting analysis <laughs> to try to determine anything about the writer. It's altogether confidential. <clears throat> I won't take these in order. But I'll begin with this one. And by the way, uh, as a reminder, or if you haven't been in this fellowship, I call it question and response for a reason. I'm not trying to be technical. But question and answer implies that I know the answer to things. And... I can't take that position unless it's a matter of truth that's been revealed and defined. Then we can answer. But if we say question and response, the response is a genuine reply in fellowship. But it should be received and considered as fellowship, not as some definitive word especially about complicated matters. Okay, talk to us about prayer. Okay, I'm happy to do this. Brother Ryan, for this question, uh, it went outside the field of the yeah. spreadsheet, so maybe I could read the entire... Yeah, there are a, a few others. Good. The question says, uh, talk to us about prayer. How and what to pray for our children and our grandchildren. When there is a serious situation or illness and seemingly no answer to prayer, how to continue praying and not be discouraged? Do we ever stop? Is it ever presumptuous to keep on praying? And then a kind of an alternative question. How and what should we pray for the threatening world situation? Okay, on the one hand, prayer is so simple. You just talk to the Lord and express things to him and ask things of him. And we should have that kind of exercise, especially in our personal relationship with the Lord. We should pray in simplicity, uh, bringing all feelings into fellowship, bringing all concerns to him, making our requests known. When Paul said in Philippians, you know, do not be anxious, make your requests known to God. When we're praying in this way, we shouldn't be 
analyzing, is this, am I praying according to the will of God? Is it the permissive will of God? This kind of prayer is your personal petition for whatever's on your heart. And you should be free to ask for that, whatever that may be. Of course, eventually it should be settled in our being that on our side we have a desire and we have a request, but we also recognize God's purpose, God's intention, and God's will. So we're ready to yield to that. On the other hand, prayer is a very deep and costly matter that actually requires more of a sister or brother than what is required to produce ministry, which is costly indeed. And the reason for this is something we need to explore. Because as you've heard many times, and as you already have in mind, the sisters may have a very particular function and ministry in prayer. But in order to have that kind of prayer, the prayer that can carry out God's will, the prayer that can execute God's government, the prayer that can deal with God's enemy, the prayer that can rule over environments. This is another matter entirely. And what has to happen, among other things, is this. This kind of prayer is not originated with us. It's not in the realm of our personal feelings, our needs, our requests. This is the prayer according to a very crucial principle that God has ordained for his operation to carry out his economy. And that is, God will not act alone. So the principle of prayer is that God in some way makes his will, his desire known to someone or someones. And they receive that and take it into them in such a way that it becomes their own burden. Then they express that in their prayer to God. And the Lord fulfills his desire by fulfilling our desire expressed in our prayer, which prayer expresses God's desire. This is the prayer, in particular, <clears throat> in John fifteen seven. 
There the Lord said, abide in me. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done. Well, we can't start in the middle of this verse and say, oh, whatever I want. Uh, Then you just fill in the blanks. No, if you abide in me, then my words that convey my intention abide in you. That will lead you to pray something you want. But what you want will be the expression of what God wants. Hey, this is prayer. But this kind of prayer, and actually, in essence, this is prayer, involves something flowing out of God into us, through us, and out of us, and back to him. But as we consider how this can actually happen, we face huge problems. Uh, And sisters being deeper than brothers generally... And being more inward and subjective, I say this positively, than brothers generally. There's a lot in you. And what's in you and what you are can negate the prayer. It can make it impossible for some to utter anything other than what they feel in themselves. The only thing they can pray is what they feel in their emotion and what they think. But the Lord needs all of our faculties, and so he needs to deal with our being so that our spirit and our heart and all the parts of our soul are available to labor with the Lord so that in our emotion, his feeling can become our feeling. Our feeling concerning this is set aside. Our opinion, our intention are set aside. And then the Lord can flow through our entire being and do what I try to just point out to you, Fulfill his will by revealing it, it becomes our will, and we express it. Um, In the church in Anaheim, where I am sometimes, (laughs) there is usually a battle right in the prayer meeting. And... The, the problem in, entailing the battle is caused by prayers that are not prayers. They're usually offered by sisters. They're not prayers. They're prayers because they have the form of a prayer. You're addressing the Lord and you're saying something. But they're not prayers. And they just won't stop. They won't stop. And so we either have to 
wait it out, and then we come back to the flow. <coughs> this shows a very practical matter. Uh, a subject comes up for prayer, and it triggers off feelings and ideas that are in you related to that, and then out pop the feelings and ideas related to that. But it can be even more challenging. We'll, we'll look at both sides of this because this is this is huge. Okay. I received an email earlier this week. Uh, it didn't surprise me at all because a certain matter had come up in fellowship in a place I visited, and the fellowship surely was genuine. But. Um, some were had an adverse response to that. And then it came out in so-called prayers that were the raw expression of self. That's all I can call it. And, and now as I'm reflecting on the situation, I'm very burdened for this church that there probably will need to be a major divine intervention somehow to just stop what is coming out from certain sisters in the prayer meeting because it's, uh, it, it just nullifies the whole meeting. So that's enough on the side of the challenge. So we have these two aspects of prayer, the simple personal aspect, which we should never neglect. This can go on all day long. You can express whatever's on your heart. Don't analyze it. If you're a single sister and you want to be married, then ask the Lord for a husband. Tell him what kind of husband you want and what kind you don't want. And pray to be protected from such a one, okay? <laughs> and if you're concerned about your health, if you're worried about anything, make everything known. But now we're talking about the prayer ministry of the church. And so what the principle is, the Lord wants to do something, he will not just do it. There needs to be the prayer to carry it out. But we don't know what to pray. That's not, that doesn't mean there's something wrong. It just means we're human. So we come to the Lord. We're here to serve him for an hour in prayer or with some vital companions and we're burdened to pray or in a small group. And we just present ourselves to the Lord. We are one with you. We like to labor with you for your move on the earth to carry out your economy. We're here like Mary was here for the spirit to conceive something in us. We're here as empty vessels. And you are prepared for that because you have allowed through the course of your life the Lord to touch your inward parts in such a way that your natural constitution your natural feelings 
will not become a problem. And you're able to express any thought, any feeling in prayer that's according to God. Then the Lord can flow without hindrance and do very great things through the church. Last Tuesday, I happened to be there in the meeting, and I am deferring to the leading brothers. I'm simply a brother there. And nothing was forthcoming, so I pointed out to the church, we need to pray for Sierra Leone. We have received an urgent email letter from Paul Cook, a co-worker from London who is native African, and he said it's, it's a serious threat to the saints and to the churches. And so we immediately entered into that for about 15 minutes. There was very prevailing prayer from different angles to address this situation. And then the prayer went actually beyond saints and churches to crying out to the Lord to preserve and save human life for the sake of his interests and to save countless people in this situation. Well, this is an, an instance. And during that period of prayer, everyone could lay aside their concerns about other things. Why aren't we praying about this or that? The Lord wanted us to pray concerning this matter. And when that was finished, then something else could flow out. Sometimes it's direction given by the brothers. Sometimes it's prompted by the Spirit's intuition through any member of the body, either brothers or sisters. Now about praying for certain kinds of things. Things, okay, praying concerning your children. And then uh, what to do when we're praying for matters like health and there's no answer? Uh, is it presumptuous to keep praying? Should we stop praying? Praying for the world situation. So let's just take time for fellowship and all of these. Okay, when you are praying for your children, what is the source of your praying? Now it's now you're not only making your request known. Now you're in another mode of prayer where you are linking okay, I'm, I'm a step ahead of myself. Where you are praying in a much more definite way. You need to realize regarding your children, there's a boundary. And we have to learn to accept this boundary, which I'll identify for you. Parents have no ground and no standing to direct and determine the futures of their grown children. And parents do not have the right or the standing to determine the spiritual future 
of their children. We raise them, train their character, give them the moral law, help them to develop into normal human beings, provide for their education, give them the gospel. We have the promise of household salvation. We can claim this. But beyond that, we don't have the standing to try to effect through prayer what we want to happen to our children. So when we are praying earnestly, again, not in the prayer of just, Lord, my daughter, and you just open your heart and you express the longing within you. There is a crucial connection that needs to be made. And when it's made, the prayer enters another dimension. And I'd rather illustrate than define the connection. Okay, you've got Hannah, who has no child. And how does a second wife, you know, I, I don't know. But anyway, Peninnah's there, and she's got kids, and Hannah doesn't have anything. And she is a mother, and she wants a son. And she's praying for a son. And listen to this. God closed up her womb. She doesn't know this. God temporarily is making it impossible for her request to be fulfilled. But she could not stop praying. Then she made a connection between her request for a son and God's need for a Nazarite. So when she prayed, if you give me a son, he will be a Nazarite from his birth. I will give him to you from his birth. So in this case, the Lord would not make things easy for Hannah, just out of love and mercy, saying, I want you to be fulfilled as a woman. You want to be a mom. I really love you. I'm no respecter of persons. I'll give you a child. Then Hannah's just excited. She'll, he can be giggling with joy. She's pregnant and she has a baby. And God gains nothing. Nothing. But because Hannah's a kind of person who's for the Lord and is willing to pay the price to serve the Lord in a degraded situation, the Lord knows he can accomplish something through her praying, but it will be costly to her. And the cost is the Lord's silence, the Lord doing nothing. But she cannot stop praying. So a little sidebar. If you can stop praying about a certain matter, then stop. But me thinks that about certain things, you'll say, I'm tired, I prayed about this enough. And you stop, 
for half a day. And then it wells up within you because it's not something you turn off and on. It's in your being. We may come back to this. So when Hannah connected her human longing for a son, somehow to God's need for someone to change the whole age, to, have a, to be a dispensational agent, that is when the way was open. And Hannah still, it wasn't that easy. She went up to the priest, Eli, and she was praying out of desperation. And he, Eli, Eli, a typical man, doesn't understand what the female is going through and misconstrues it and says she's drunk. And she says, I'm not drunk. I'm pouring out my soul. And then he says, may the Lord grant you your request. It is pleasing to the Lord that we can pray for our sons and daughters and by extension our grandchildren from a source higher than our natural affection. From the aspiration that whatever is in the Lord's heart for this child or grandchild will be carried out. That the, whatever the Lord intends to do to accomplish in this life. So now you're not simply only praying for this or that human thing, whether it's education or marriage. You are connecting. You're concerned about that with God's economy, God's administration. Now, unless you have a very keen intuition, and you may, of how the Lord intends to use that one, you have to let it rest with something general. But at least you've done all that you can to link your concern for your sons and daughters, to God's will. Uh, I do know what it means to pray and pray and pray and pray for years and years, knowing that scores of saints are praying the same thing for years concerning someone. No answer. Silence. No apparent activity. And that long interval has been and still is a very deep dealing of my own being. Both toward God and toward the person about whom I'm praying. Eventually, this is not a teaching, this is a testimony. I had to acknowledge the fact that maybe he's not chosen, meaning to be an overcomer. Is that all right with me? Would I be offended at God if someone else's daughter or son 
seems to be taking a straight course to co-kingship in the coming age. And my daughter or son is involved in an extended deviation. I have to recognize under the Lord's enlightening, I have to settle something in my being toward the Lord. You are the Lord. He's saved or she is saved. I do aspire for something more than that. It seemed X number of years ago it was going to be that. Then it all blew up. Now, in a situation like this, you can just give up and just say, I've prayed enough prayers. Um, and I would say, anything you can stop doing in spiritual exercise or anything that can be stopped, should be stopped. But prayer like this, it doesn't stop. And so it just, it may change form, and you pray. Now one part of the question was, is it presumptuous to keep on praying? Well, it may be if you receive some kind of indication either in the environment or in your fellowship with the Lord, that you, you should just stop asking for this. Because one can fall into obsession and the prayer can intensify the obsession. That a few years ago, there was a wedding meeting, the lovely young couple in California somewhere. And... Uh, a brother marrying the sister. He loved her. She loved him. But there was another sister who really had a long-term interest in that brother. And there were older sisters that wanted that brother for that sister. And they would not accept the engagement. And they would not accept the marriage. And at least up through the wedding meeting, which they refused to attend, they would not stop praying. Okay, that is obsession. That is obsession. That is self-will in, in a very strong manifestation. We should be able to detect if the Lord has indicated by the environment that we should stop asking for this. The environment is indicating it's not going to be. Or your being, your inner being, is protesting against your praying about this. Now, to complicate things a little in a blessed way, and, and I'm delighted to do this, there's a very positive time when God wants you to stop praying. And this opens up a whole other dimension of prayer that is presented to us in Mark 11. 
In Mark 11, the Lord curses the fig tree. And the next morning, he walks by with his disciples. And they're shocked that the fig tree has withered and died. And the Lord begins to talk about prayer. Have faith in God. Have the faith of God. And then he says, when you pray, believe that you have received your requests. And you will receive it. Now, when the Lord spoke to that fig tree, he knew as soon as he spoke it, it was done. It was God's will to do it. When he spoke, it was done. He did not have to get up before dawn and sprint to the tree to see what happened. So he could explain the matter to the apostles. He knew by his speaking it was settled. The Lord would like more and more to bring us into a kind of prayer where we are praying then our faith reaches the point in this prayer that we know that we have the answer. We know that we have received it. That's why the Lord says, believe that you have received it and you will receive it. Now, this is something that we should not just try to do. You can't just verbally say this. I'm praying, I believe that I have it. That's not going to work. It's in the interaction with the Lord in this prayer. He imparts the faith to you that sight unseen, you can say, I know that I have it. Then you stop praying for it and thank the Lord and praise the Lord. My experience of this is limited, but in 1974, I, I needed a new and a different job. Quite earnestly, we were expecting the third child, and we didn't have insurance where we were, and the economic situation was not encouraging. But something opened up that was very suitable. I applied for it. The interview went very well, and, my, and in my praying about it, I eventually had the faith to say, I have the job. But it didn't come the next day. There were delays and there were hindrances. But I could not pray for it any longer. I could only believe I have the job, so I got the job. Now, regarding praying for things like illness and other matters... This, this is bringing in yet another angle. It makes a huge difference whether you're praying in hope or praying in faith. Prayers in hope for things like healing or whatever will not be answered. Prayers in faith are answered. And somewhere, uh, I know Brother Nee spoke this, and it's in the collected work somewhere. <clears throat> he talks about two cases of brothers that were ill and his praying with them. 
And after the second, he pointed out to somebody, this brother will be healed, and that brother will not be healed. Okay, we're not talking about all prayers for healing. We're talking about something particular. So then, of course, the brothers wanted to know why. He said, this one is praying in hope. Hope is related to the future. And often prayers that are not prayers, they go like this. They inform God about what he can do. That Lord, you are omnipotent and you know everything and you can do. He, he knows that. He doesn't need you to tell him that. What do you want? He told this, the woman, the Syrophoenician woman, what do you want me to do? <clears throat> the Lord will answer the prayer of faith. But faith is related to the past. It's not related to the future. So we may begin in hope because faith substantiates hope, right? It's the substantiating of things hoped for. It's not wrong to pray in hope. Don't paralyze yourself by saying, I don't know whether I'm praying in hope or faith, so I'm afraid to make a mistake and you don't pray. Just pray. But hope needs to become faith, and that happens as the faith is being dispensed into you as you are praying, and then hope becomes faith, and at that point, you can say, I have received what I have asked for. So you can see from this substantial Response to the request, talk to us about prayer. So you have to admit, I, I have been talking to you about prayer. It's on the one hand so simple, <clears throat> and the simple aspect should be preserved in our personal life. But when it comes to the prayer ministry and praying for God's will, um, we need to open ourselves to the Lord to be gained by him thoroughly in our being. So I recommend a book, and I urgently advise you not to make the mistake I made twice, okay? I already made the mistake, so there's no need for it to be made again. I picked up this book, Lessons on Prayer, because I knew that I was really pitiful in this matter. And, oh, the first two or three chapters, they, I was just illuminated and inspired about what faith is, God flowing through you and out from you. Then Brother Lee talks about every part of our being in relation to prayer. And then I realized, I'm a mess. My inward parts are not like this. It's hopeless, so I stopped reading. <laughs> then sometime later... I made a second attempt, got a little farther, and stopped. The third time, probably someone was praying. I just said, look, I'm going to forget my subjective situation. I'm simply going to read this book and let it minister to me. Because that book shows how the ministry of prayer involves our entire being. And the Lord needs to have access to our entire being and work on our entire being so he can flow 
ceaselessly through us in prayer. But, you know, consider James and John. They almost had a prayer about the Samaritans that rejected the Lord. They said, Lord, how about we pray for God to cast fire on them? And so we can pray all kinds of things if we're motivated by, by whatever. Now, one other comment, then I'm going to leave this on an ellipsis, meaning it's by no means final. But you put the lessons on prayer with the prayer ministry of the church. This will enlighten you very much. That Because Brother Nee, knowing the principle of prayer, he could... He said the church needs to pray great prayers. Now you asked about the world situation. We should always be observing the world situation. And we should be concerned about it. And we should be before the Lord to pray. I do believe the Lord intends for the church to pray concerning this terrorist state, ISIS. We, we, we will pray for the president, but I have no confidence at all that there is the will in this administration to accomplish what God needs to accomplish there. And so we need to pray transcendent prayers about that situation that affects the Middle East. It's no exaggeration to say it could affect the well-being of this country and others. We're not going to sit passively And let this happen. Is not the Lord in his administration burdened and praying about what's going on under this terrorist group? Surely he will give us prayers where we can express what the heavens want to do. But we have to be careful. We're not praying revolutionary prayers like some prayed some years ago, Lord, overthrow Castro in Cuba, and he's still there and his brother is still there, the octogenarians. But we can pray like for North Korea. How can we be indifferent? You read about the despicable treatment of believers in North Korea. So prayers, Lord, release the white horse of the gospel to run in North Korea. Do what you need to do. I personally feel, and this could be a little bit of God. I know it's probably quite a lot of Ron, but there might be a little bit of God. This current leader in North Korea is a joke. Lord, you can't... You don't, Surely you don't intend for him to remain in power very long. You know what they have erected when I was in Korea in June? I was told about this, so I went online. In the location of a place where there was a very great revival in the early 20th century in Pyongyang, they have erected two huge golden statues of the two previous rulers. It's just gross idolatry. And these, there is emperor leader worship throughout the country. If once we hear about this, I believe the Lord may incite us. 
Lord, that's an insult to you. Remove those idols from North Korea. Your name must be sanctified in North Korea. So we will pray things like this. This is a whole universe that the Lord wants to open to us. We can pray like this in the prayer meeting of the church, in group meetings, and I can testify. You can pray like this with one companion. One companion. You have the harmony spoken of in Matthew 18. And I've experienced this. I won't go into the details of just being in one spirit, with one soul, praying with this companion, and the prayer just gushes out. And we're not praying about any personal things. There's no personal interest. So, now we'll go to the other eight questions, um, which are are different in nature. And... So let's just take them now in order. And I, I think I know where this is coming from. Hi, Brother Ron. I say, hi, sister, whoever you are. <laughs> in the New Testament age, can the loss of the birthright be due to one act of failure? When we have the blood of Jesus and Christ is our jubilee to restore us, if we avail our, ourselves of him and his provision. Okay, I have to be careful here. Uh, in the Old Testament, in Genesis, you have two cases of persons losing their birthright as a result of a single act. And there is Ministry in keeping with Brother Lee's way, when he's on the matter, he develops the matter. So one could get the impression, I would say mistakenly, that one act like that will automatically issue in the loss of the birthright. But that is not the teaching in the New Testament. In full. When uh, Paul refers to the losing of the birthright in Hebrews, he does refer to Esau, who for one act lost his birthright. But he says, Paul talks about a certain kind of person. Person. He illustrates by the act. But his emphasis is on the person. Now, in 1 Corinthians, Galatians, and Ephesians, Paul says the same basic thing regarding the kingdom, which really is our inheriting the birthright. And each time he mentions categories of persons, adulterers, fornicators, revilers, drunkards, persons. So the emphasis in the New Testament related to being disqualified from inheriting the kingdom is that one is a certain kind of person, 
practicing a certain kind of sin habitually without a turn. This then gives real hope based upon other provisions in the New Testament for someone who got drunk once. When he was 19, he was a believer, he was a church kid, when he was 19, he got drunk. Did he lose his birthright because he got drunk? Will God say you got drunk once? And so it doesn't matter what you do the rest of your life for 70 years. You're going into outer darkness. I don't believe that. Because he's not that kind of person. The same may apply to other things. However, in recognizing that that may apply, so someone may fall into something, And we do know of cases where people did and their repentance was thorough and they finished in victory. I think it's, we have to be very careful if we spread the idea, you do this once, you're finished. Then we've got an enemy who is subtle. Then he lures a person in weakness into something. Then they fall. Then the enemy comes and attacks. And, and even some opinionated saints that are with a narrow view may say, sorry, you can be restored to fellowship. Then the young person is going to say, why should I even stay here the rest of my life? If I'm going to go to outer darkness anyway. What's the point? That isn't the Lord's heart. That's not his heart. That someone can realize you're not that kind of person. This is not the way you live. The Lord has spared you. He spared your life. You can turn from this. Then I just add this to complement what I just said. In 1 John 5, there's a sin unto death. And Brother Lee has ministry on this in the life study of 1 John. And no one can say, the Catholic Church has a list of mortal sins, but we do not, and the Bible does not give one. That depends on one's standing before God in the house of God. So in Moses... Because he failed to represent God, he misrepresented God. God said, for that one action alone, you're not entering the good land. That's not the inheritance per se, but it shows it's up to the Lord to decide what constitutes a sin unto death and what constitutes the loss of the birthright. So on the side of righteousness... We should fear God and realize that to do certain things are really risky. They really place one in peril. On the other hand, on the side of love and mercy, in this age of grace, we simply should not be teaching, I cannot teach, 
you do this, 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 this once, you lost the birthright. That does not adequately represent the heart of God toward us in this age. And I feel this is a balanced, a balanced view. The real thing, the crossover point, is when one is a certain kind of person. It's not that you did something. Then you fall into the category, because you're this kind of person, you can't inherit the kingdom. I mean, how would you feel if I really, if I gave, this, this is hypothetical, if eventually I told the recovery, I give a message. You know, I didn't start doing what I'm doing really until I was 55, right? Suppose I told you that I was convicted of first-degree manslaughter and did 15 years in prison before I came into the Lord's recovery. I think you withdraw all of your sons and daughters from the full-time training. I'd never be invited to another conference again. But that was Moses' bio. And uh, Paul began breathing out murder. And so, but when they turned, Moses didn't habitually knock off Egyptians. And that's not what he did when he was sent there. So I think this is sufficient to give what I hope is a balanced view of this. As a young sister who graduated from the training, what should I do when a lot of saints have high expectations, giving lots of pressure and demands? When I myself am still struggling with the Lord about my own personal situation, instead of producing cheering wine, somehow it leads to bitterness and a judging heart. Uh, thinking you should be the one who takes the lead to be a good pattern instead of giving commands. Okay, um, we cannot control other people's opinions. How can you? And expectations. Those that are really one with the Lord, that are learning to live Christ, that have a shepherding heart for FTT graduates, won't lay expectations on anybody, on anybody. This is a young person, probably under 25, who just graduated from a training. They're not anointed apostles. They just had some training. And in love's sake, the saints need to let go of their expectations, their assumptions, all of this. But that's not going to happen, okay? Altogether, it's not going to happen. Just as the giving of opinions there is no end, it's not going to happen. So this young sister, this is not easy, but you can do this. You need... To not fear man and not be a slave of man, but realize you live 
to the Lord. You are the Lord's. You live to the Lord. Not to others' expectations. And this needs, you do need to ask the Lord to cultivate this in you. That even if others have expectations, you have the mercy to them. Okay, they have the expectations. I am not subject to them. They may be three times my age. I'm not subject. That is not the feeling of the body. That is opinion. That is the self. Even if they express something, even if a group of them expresses something, that is collective opinion. You bring the matter to the Lord, and you live to the Lord, and then you seek out Fellowship of saints who are not in that category. And you just say, I need help in how to go on. How should I be? I need to grow as a person. I need to grow as a sister. I can't live under the expectation that I should go to Bangladesh and gospelize and truthize the country. And I do believe if you allow the Lord to shepherd you inwardly and you have the care of sisters and brothers that are not in that realm, they understand your needs. And especially the leading brothers in the church where you are, they realize, like in Austin, the saints return, there's minimal expectation of them. You're now in a transition period. You're in a learning mode. We're not going to place this heavy burden on you. So I'm not at all cynical, but certain things are just not going to stop. Gossip is not going to stop. It's just not. The opinions are not going to stop. And the expression of expectations is not going to stop. Don't internalize it. You don't have to take it subjectively. Do not dishonoring that older sister if you don't do it. You recognize the source. You're not judging. But you know where it's coming from, so you don't have to take it. You live to the Lord, then you seek the covering and the provision of both sisters and brothers. There are older sisters that will take care of you. They'll be a mom to you. And you can open this to them, and they will supply you. And the brothers will cover you and protect you. And I will add, fight for you, okay? And P.S., I think she would like you to know the P.S. I appreciate your word from the summer training, quote, as long as it is under the Lord's sovereignty and we yield to his mercy, there is grace. Amen. Okay, way to go, sister. Amen. If you are single and seeking, awaiting for a husband, how do you not let your heart deceive you in liking a brother that may not be the Lord's choice or arrangement for you, Brother Ron. <laughs> okay. okay, okay. Well, there's certainly a difference between liking someone and being having your heart deceived. Right. Now, any question that begins with how is really asking for a way or a method, and there aren't any. 
Okay, there aren't any. So let's okay, so let's look at the situation and a little bit and I really deeply in the Lord sympathize with the sisters and am simply baffled by brothers. Baffled, perplexed, nonplussed, bothered, frustrated by them. Okay. <laughs> because when when and let me explain by that, when they just won't take the proper action as God meant to take action. So here's the sister seeking, waiting. And she doesn't want to overstep. But she wants to get married. And so you she meets someone. Okay, how does how does she put it? That may not be the Lord's choice or arrangement for you. Well, how do you know someone is not the Lord's choice or not the Lord's arrangement? Okay, let me try to say a couple of things. But okay, I, I know this isn't going to work, but I have to say it anyway. The first thing, sister, is to guard your heart from the following thought. So at least understand the thought. And the thought is the worst situation is to be unmarried. That's the worst situation. There could be nothing worse than this. And based upon experience and others' experience, fellowship with saints, observation, there is something worse than that. And that is a really bad marriage. And there have been really bad marriages among believers. And you need to be, your heart needs to be protected. Because if you're driven by the thought, the worst thing is to be single. Or to be single until such and such an age. You are vulnerable to an unsuitable situation arising. And, you know, this man or brother has some good points and you are attracted to him and he's attracted to you and he has a job and, and the brothers aren't doing anything and so God isn't hearing your prayers and so you're going to act on your own. I mean, I'm not exaggerating. You may regret that deeply for the rest of your life. So that's one way, but that's a kind of negative thing, but that's a way to protect yourself from the enemy's ruse to use that fear. What can the sisters do? I don't know. What can you do? You can pray, and you should pray. If you have any feeling that is sustained, then it's good to seek fellowship. 
to whether or not the brother, a leading brother, might talk to that brother to see if he's awake and, and, and active and interested. And sometimes the question comes up, it's sort of implied here. Well, what about marrying someone from the outside? Well, I have to give a, a two-part answer or probably, sorry, response to this. In principle, we would say, you marry a brother in the church. You marry a brother who matches you. But I, I, I presided over a wedding in Irving, Texas, a little over 20 years ago. And a middle-aged sister who had been married before and had daughters, but whose situation gave her the ground to remarry. She happened to be African-American. She met a man at work, a Caucasian-American, an honorable man. And they developed feeling for each other, and they loved each other. And this sister did what another sister in Irving, Texas, did many years before that, when her husband violated the marriage and she had the ground to remarry, she met a very honorable, respectable man at work. Love developed, feelings developed. So this is what both sisters did. They're not playing around. They're not selling themselves cheaply. They tell the, the man, this is a package deal. <laughs> what do I mean by package deal? I, I love you. You love me. I would like to be with you and you with me. But I am consecrated to the Lord for Christ and the church. I am living an active, committed church life. And you must join me in living this kind of Christian life and church life, not just to get married, not just to get me, but you've got to decide on your own you're going to do this or we have no future together. In both cases, the brothers did this. Time has proved this, right? They're, they're, they're good husbands. They're good providers. They're good stepfathers. They're good brothers in the church. So then how can I say dogmatically to a living, breathing sister that God will never allow this to happen when God allows this to happen <laughs> sometime? And there's another sister. I, I don't know if Irving specializes in this. <laughs> but it happened when I was there. A sister, from the point of view of an older brother, a comely, pleasant, available sister, loving the Lord, intelligent, educated. Why the brothers aren't moving, I don't know. 
So we never have brothers' meetings. They don't ask for a quint. If they dared ask for a Q&R, we would get into it with them. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, this sister just disappeared. She just disappeared. And I kind of sensed why she disappeared. Then about a year and a half later, she reappeared, but not alone. She reappeared with her husband, whom she had brought to the Lord and was now bringing to the church. And he had a very good feeling about him. Then I left Irving to move to Anaheim at Brother Lee's request. And I'm serving with the brothers in the full-time training. And one year later, this brother is there as a trainee. So they come as a couple. She is either serving or working. He's in the training. After he graduates, they go to Russia and serve. So I can only say, sisters, in principle, pray for the best of brothers who will match you from within the Lord's recovery. But the other options I leave to the sovereign God. Because this city has 12 gates. And if God chooses to do that, who am I to say that he is not doing that in this case? But there is a big difference between uh, a sister developing a relationship properly but maintaining her stand and someone who will let go of what she's given herself for. The most extreme case I encountered in a visit in Poland. I was there for a conference, but the brothers asked, would you meet with the single sisters? I thought, I'd rather go to Patagonia and preach to penguins. <laughs> okay, okay. And the ratio there at that time was 20 to 1, sisters to brothers. So I'm trying to fellowship with them, not just nice things, from the heart, caring for their situation. Then a sister comes in late, interrupts the meeting, rebukes me for my speaking. I wasn't offended, I assure you, although I had an understanding of why she's still single. But, um, <laughs> and then she went on to say, I prayed all my prayers, I shed all my tears. I am going to open a website and present myself to Males at large. I don't know whatever happened. But another sister in that country, she did that. And a man responded. And they began to see each other. And they got married. And she married a Muslim Turk. And she's a mother now. She's a wife now. Our hearts just go out. I know there are sisters and sisters here that pray, pray earnestly for the single sisters. We love you. We care for you. We bury you. Whenever I receive an email about a wedding invitation, or a wedding announcement, rather, I have a twofold response. Joy 
and relief. Like, okay, we've been carrying this one around and it's taken care of. Uh, But I just add, I'm, I'm still somewhat perplexed. I mean, I'm a man, I do understand how men feel, how they think, what their need is. I don't understand it when young men, God men, don't take action. Anyway, I'm not going to give up on them altogether. Because <laughs> to give up on them is to give up on the sisters. Anyway, I'm admittedly emoting a little bit, which I think uh, you can relate to. Okay, I am a mother with very young children. I am often exhausted and seldom happy. I want to enjoy the Lord, to be supplied, to sense the Lord's presence. But for whatever reason or many reasons, instead I feel very alone, unable to maintain the steady enjoyment of the Lord. Why is it so difficult to enjoy the Lord in this stage? especially to the extent that I am supplied enough to not constantly fail myself and my family? How can my joy be restored and steady? Well, really, it should be other moms that have passed through this stage of child-rearing that should be addressing this point. I can only... And maybe this has some help, maybe limited help. I can only speak as a brother husband. And allow me to say this. Who learned to care for his wife when she was in this situation. And learned to care for her not only spiritually, but humanly. Okay, one thing is... You need to accept from deep within this limitation. This is a God-ordained way of constriction. Really imposed upon fallen human beings. The life study of Genesis speaks to this. And especially if a sister was very seeking and active in the church life and serving the Lord and then you get married and one child comes and another child comes and you know the story. The child isn't aware of your schedule, doesn't know you're trying to have morning revival. You first really need to accept the limitation and come to know the wheat Christ, the wheat Christ, the limited Christ, the Christ who is a grain of wheat, living under all kinds of restrictions. This is part of it. Another element may be that you have to kind of set aside the recommended schedule of you can do this alone for half an hour in the morning because little people are going to be 
rising up early and they're going to be active and they're making their requests known. <laughs> and you may possibly have morning revival about 11.30. Now, I mentioned this antidote before, but my wife once wrote a little poem about a cup of cold tea. And um, the situation is, there were three, there were just three, <clears throat> and for a period of time, all needs were met, all three were occupied, everything was quiet. Mother could have a time alone, a human time. So she prepared tea, boiled the water, put in the tea bag, let it steep. Then hours later, she happened across the cup now of cold tea. Because in between the insertion of the tea bag and finding the cup of tea later, all kinds of things happen. And they just had the priority. They had the priority. So that cup of cold tea kind of symbolized motherhood at that stage in a positive way. Now, I want to be careful here when I'm speaking in principle. The husband's busy too. But he's not busy in the way the mother is. I began to learn at least somewhat. I need to build in opportunities for my wife to be refreshed, to be refreshed. Like, okay, I'm home with the kids for this period of time. And you do whatever is refreshing to you. If you want to go buy more fish, then go buy more fish. <laughs> if you want to go visit a sister and pray read, you go visit a sister and pray read. You do something that is refreshing to you, spiritually and humanly. My turn with the kids. And eventually, we took one step beyond that. We realized the need for what we began to call preventative maintenance in the whole family situation. <laughs> and that is, you know things are building up. And so there was another church family. They had four. We had three. I say, okay, uh, I'm taking my wife, if we can work this out, we're going to Desert Hot Springs near Palm Desert for three days and two nights. And our kids will stay with you. And they all like that. And you can handle the seven. <laughs> then when it's your turn, we take the four and we will handle the seven. And we just went out there in a divinely human way so she could get refreshed so we could be refreshed and that I could be refreshed. This is by far, this is not the whole answer, but there needs to be some practical arrangement to give you room, to give you breathing space, 
you will accept the unpredictable schedule. We'll accept the nights of antiphonal crying of two babies. We'll accept the hours in the ER. We'll ex- you can accept not seeing the Lord's table meeting for seven weeks because when it's your turn to go, your kids are sick. And when your kids are well, it's your turn to serve. And so you haven't had the Lord's table meeting for how long, you know. As long as, in a divine and human way, you can touch the Lord's supply in your situation. And that your husband is aware of this. Because there needs to be the cherishing and the provision on the human side. And it's when, because when we are exhausted and depleted on the human side, we just can't be spiritual. We just can't. And that is when we're most vulnerable. And the Lord, I'm referring to prayer again, after these very high prayers for the kingdom and the will of God to be done, the Father's name to be sanctified, he said, pray for daily bread. And Brother Nee says it's like coming down thousands of feet. But when we are set to seek the Lord and to care for his kingdom and the things of his economy, the enemy is alerted. And he will attack most when we're humanly and physically weak. And we need to guard against that situation A wife needs to guard her husband, and a husband needs to guard his wife as the weaker vessel. The enemy wants to just wear you out, and it's the wearing out that produces all of these symptoms. It's not the limitation itself. It's not the sacrifice. You were were born for this. You're constituted for this. You've never hesitated to do this. But it's when... The enemy behind the scene uses the situation just to grind you down and wear you out. That's when you despair, and that's when it's hopeless. And that is not necessary to happen. That can be prevented. But it will take your partner, it will take your husband. I I hope he can listen to you when you utter the most serious words a man can hear, right? You know what they are. We need to talk. <laughs> he needs to learn that there's no we there. There is no we. We, we isn't talking. You, you, okay, and you be definite. Turn off your cell phone. Don't flip through the mail. Don't, even though if you mute the TV, don't watch what's going on. I want you to listen to me. I'm not sure what I'm going to say, but if you listen to me, I will say it. And then you, then you let him know that such and such. Or maybe some watchful brothers who are not opinionated will take him out for Starbucks and say, uh, you need to go, you need to take your wife out for dinner. I know the best prime rib restaurant. You need to take her there. You need to cherish her. 
need to go away for a while. Actually, why don't you take your whole family away? I know the best campsite at Yosemite High Country. I needed a brother to do this to me, to rescue me from unbalanced spirituality. And then the P.S. is, my wife just always had a way of making the situation very clear. <laughs> and that turned out to be quite helpful. My, okay, my husband won't pray with me. He loves the Lord. He loves the saints. But he won't pray with me. This isn't a new thing. He has barely ever prayed with me since we got married. We've discussed it, and he acknowledges that it's not a good thing, but he is still unable. I am concerned that many aspects of our family life are struggling as a result of this. What do I do? I don't know (laughs) what to do. Because, I mean... When men get stubborn and when they go into the cave, you can't do anything verbally. Um, But I would, I think I would, really seek the Lord. Okay, I would stop right now asking him to pray. And I would stop focusing on his not praying. And I would like to ask the Lord, What is the root cause of his not wanting to pray with me and not just what he won't do it? There has to be a reason. I remember this is just before I got married and came into the church life, but I was having fellowship with a dear brother. He'd been married at least 15 years. And for some reason, he told me this. He said, yesterday, my wife said to me, dear, would you like to pray? And then, I wouldn't say he broke down and wept, but he said, oh, would I ever love to do that? Would I ever love to do that? And they prayed for the first time in their marriage. Why he didn't suggest it, I don't know. But there has to be a reason. And I would ask the Lord, not just for the sake of your marriage, for the sake of the prayer in your marriage that's related to God's economy. Lord, touch the reason why my husband won't pray with me. Does my spirituality intimidate him? Does he feel inferior to me? Is there just something in him that he feels embarrassed, whatever it is? I would just beseech the Lord. But appealing to him is not going to work. Tears won't work in this instance, no matter what kind of tears there are. And you know there are many varieties (laughs) that serve different purposes. Maybe from time to time, you might, you might bring it up gently. Uh, according to, this is altogether on target, but it is somewhat appropriate. 
Peter addresses the husbands on this very thing about the prayers being hindered. This is 1 Peter 3. And he says you need to live with your wife according to knowledge as the weaker vessel. Not weak vessel. Weaker vessel. Giving more honor to her because you are fellow heirs of the grace of life so that your prayers would not be hindered. This portion indicates, and this is especially the husband's responsibility, there are factors that hinder the prayers. There's usually some lack of understanding of either the marriage relationship or of the female vessel that causes the prayer to be hindered. Now, in this case, the wife is not hindered in her desire to pray, but the husband is hindered in his ability to pray. And actually, this should be the primary unit of prayer in the whole church life. And only the heavens know how many hundreds, maybe thousands of prayers are hindered because married brothers and sisters just cannot pray together. Sometimes it's because either or both lapse into living a natural life at home, not a God-man life at home, or there, whatever the reason is. But it's all I can offer, sister, is that you beseech the Lord to bring to light the reason for this and to release your husband to pray with you. How can we properly raise our children in a society where homosexuality has become so common and even, quote, normal? They're likely to encounter many in their schools who are homosexual or whose parents are so. What should their attitude and maybe more appropriately our attitude be in raising our children in this kind of environment? Well, 40 years really has brought a huge change from the time my children were little. But I've been asked this question in a slightly different form. And I would be very direct with them. First, this is what God wants regarding human sexuality and human relationships and marriage. This is God's way. And this is God's intention. And this is what we believe. And this is what we live. And this is what we practice. And this is what we require of you. The way we will teach you. And this is the way of the church. Because the church takes God's way. So you need to know this. We will never compromise this. We will never modify this. We will never apologize for this. 
But the world in which you live is different from this. It's totally different. And uh, I personally feel the tide is irreversible. It will become probably universal law, the redefinition of marriage. I don't think we should be fighting in the political sphere to try to defeat that. I don't think it's beneficial to try to pray that the Lord is just going to stop it. It's going to increase until it's like the days of Noah. That's the Lord's own word. But we point out to them, even if the law says two of the same gender can be married, we do not regard that as marriage. And even though that kind of sexual behavior may be tolerated and accepted, we cannot agree with that behavior. Now, if a person has that inclination, that's one thing. Like a heterosexual male has an inclination, that doesn't mean he lawlessly indulges himself. You may have the inclination, but the behavior we do not agree and we do not accept. And you do the best you can to prepare your child to live counter the world. There's no agreement. And so if just in the course of human events, and I'm in a state, and here is a same-sex married couple. I'm not going to dispute the legal status of their marriage. But if we could have an honest conversation, I would say, before God whom I serve, I cannot and do not regard that as marriage. As a citizen, I recognize it's your legal right. So I'm not going to give you a hard time. But don't try to impose this on me. Call me anything you want. Don't impose this on me. I don't demand that you embrace God's view and our view. I don't know of any alternative but to inoculate them because it's going to just be I believe, worse and worse. Okay. How can we... Okay. A newly saved brother or sister brought an openly gay lesbian friend, acquaintance, to a gospel meeting. This gospel friend is very open and continued to come to the meetings. What should we do? Should we ask this brother or sister to stop inviting this gospel friend? If yes, what should we say to this brother or sister? If we continue to let this gay, lesbian, gospel friend come, does this send a wrong message to the saints, especially the young ones? The situation described took place in a church outside of North America. Um, Okay, it's a brother or sister that has an openly gay, lesbian friend acquaintance. I think we need to let this brother or sister know that this, you have this gospel friend. You want this person to be saved. And we surely 
would help this person to be saved. But such a person cannot enter into the church life and be in the fellowship of the church. That's not possible. That's not possible. And you need to know this, and probably your friend needs to know this, that the meeting you're attending is the meeting of a church which cannot receive into its midst practicing sexual deviance in this way. You can be saved, and you may even want to be with us, but you cannot practice this and be in the church life. And so the brother and sister who's befriending that one needs to know this, and that one may need to inform the gay lesbian friend that this is the view of the church. They don't hate you as a person. And they would help you be saved. And normally the ones we bring to the Lord, we bring into the church life. And that's not possible unless you forsake this way of life. In all likelihood, that friend will say, well, I'll go get saved somewhere else. But the brother or sister has to be clear. And that brother or sister should not have a sympathy in his or her being for this kind of situation. That we can't do this. Even if the whole world embraces this, the church of God never will. We can't, or we defile the testimony. Oh, I did number eight. I talked to you about prayer, right? I distinctly remember I did this. (laughs) How do we overcome our inborn defects in our soul? Do you have a fuller reading of question nine? I do not mean sin, but problems like P. Is that peculiarity? Uh, Problems like? Poor memory and lack of social perception, which hinder fellowship. Okay. Um, We are, on this matter, approaching the medical sphere. And... There just needs to be the best medical understanding of these limitations. Is there any treatment? Is there any medication that can uh, somewhat lessen these defects? They may not be. If not, then we need to accept This is the kind of soul I have. And I have difficulty then in relationships. I misperceive things. I received an email yesterday from this kind of person. Profoundly damaged in childhood, 
She's now about 50. Her emotional level is just a child. And she constantly misperceives things. So I'm not being subjective here. I gave a certain message last Wednesday night that the whole congregation would say, we were in another realm. We were in the heavenlies. We transcended space and time. We touched God's heart. But to her, that message was a cause of suffering and pain. Okay? Well, and so she, she wants the speaking to change so she doesn't suffer pain, but the pain is self-inflicted. She is a dear sister. There is no ground not to receive her. But in love and forbearance, we need to help her to see your feeling doesn't match the reality of the situation. And your perception doesn't match the reality. Are you willing in fellowship for others to help you have a proper view when you are misperceiving these things socially on our part we're going to love you more okay not less we'll love you more but we know this hinders fellowship but it's not a barrier that cannot be removed if you acknowledge it's going on and we know it's going on then together we can have a proper view if the person won't be touched, if they can't be touched, then we really can't do much. But still, they're in our midst. And unless there are some gross things that happen, we need to bear them in love and forbear. They're a child of God. God brought them into the church life. Um, they may never be able to be built up, but they're here. And and this is this this is one of the things that is it's not going to stop. Okay. Okay. I haven't. How do I bring the Lord Jesus into my work as a secular high school teacher, especially if I teach social justice curricula? I would like my students to know the Lord Jesus. I'm also having a lot of trouble balancing teaching with the church life. And I want the church life, but I am not in a position to give up my job. I remember asking Brother Lee how I can be in the spirit while I'm teaching the kind of kids I was teaching. Okay. And it was... Uh, <clears throat> Quite a, quite a situation. And, uh, well, Brother Lee gave a simple answer outwardly, and then the Spirit gave me another answer inwardly to match the outward answer. He just said, outwardly you're teaching. Inwardly it's, oh Lord, amen, hallelujah. Because he was speaking about those four words. But what the Spirit impressed me was this. I need the dividing of soul and spirit. 
Because in teaching, and in almost every other work, you have to use the faculties of your soul. If your spirit is not separated from your soul, your spirit will be buried under your soul. And you won't even think about God, you won't pray, you won't have a spiritual thought until lunch break. Then you can withdraw your soul from teaching mode, and it'll work with your spirit, and you can read the word, and you can call on the Lord, and you can sing. Then you go back, and the afternoon class is going to be more challenging than all the morning classes together. And so you're using your soul again, and then your spirit is buried, and then on the way home, you may do the same thing. But when your soul and spirit are divided, outwardly, you're teaching in the physical realm. Inwardly, you're in the spirit, in the divine and mystical realm. You're in contact with the Lord. And when you do that, you're bringing the Lord into your classroom by expressing him in his humanity with the students. Now, with the curricula, I mean, we we have to objectively teach um, what we're required to teach, but we may also have some liberty to objectively teach alternatives, right, depending on the nature of it. But almost all of my teaching experience was in challenging situations, either with the slowest or the most brilliant of students or the emotionally disturbed. In a situation, a multiracial campus in the late 60s that had seen violence to the point that we needed 50 police to come and quell the situation. So it was a challenging time to be in the spirit, and I didn't do too well, but I had some basic learning. Another way is simply to pray this, Lord, I'm going to be teaching. I have to concentrate on teaching. Be one with me. Teach in my teaching. Even when I'm speaking about these secular things, just be the teacher in me. Okay, a second question. My, my life is very different from than that of a lot of lives of the sisters my age in my locality. How do I get over my wanting what they have and be built up with them, especially when also my life feels full of constant stress and anxiety? I'm having trouble dropping myself. Well, uh, let me say this. All these other sisters they may not be doing quite as well as you suppose. (laughs) And you may not be doing quite as bad as you think, really. They just may outwardly, not that they're putting on something, but you may think they have it more together and they're this and that and you don't function at that level. But I do believe, just below the surface, you're the same. Really, we're all the same. Basically, below the surface. And uh, wanting what they have, it depends what they have that you want. I mean, if they're beautiful, I don't suggest you get plastic surgery, you know. (laughs) I mean, you, you just have to be the person you are. If you think they have 
spirituality, then you should ask the Lord positively, Lord, if they're experiencing Christ, I'd like to experience Christ. You're no respecter of persons. Okay, our time is okay, coming short, but I'll, we'll answer all these. How do we care for our husband's spiritual condition? Okay, how would I want my wife to care for my spiritual condition? Well, okay, I, I certainly do not want my condition to hold her back. I want her to, you just keep pressing on. I certainly, just as a man, not wanting to be instructed by a woman, I don't want you to lecture me. But I'm willing to receive from you. But according to Peter's word, he speaks about this. He said, your husbands are won by your manner of life without a word by your manner of life. Of course, you will pray for him. I would be very watchful, and I'm not talking about indulging, either party indulging the other, of being aware of his human needs, of his feelings. If he's middle-aged, I had two midlife crises, you know, there is such a thing, to be aware of his human situation, not just his spiritual situation. The spiritual situation may be uplifted when the human need is met. You don't know what's pressing on him, what's concerning, what, what is troubling him. He may or may not open to you. Uh, Wives need cherishing, you know, husbands need cherishing. I suppose when I was, okay, when I was at, okay, this is a particular low time in uh, late 40s. So I said to my wife, I said, um, next time you pray, will you put in a word for me with the Lord? Yeah. Let him know I'm still here. <laughs> but what might really help is she would make chocolate chip cookies. <laughs> <laughs> and sometime her world famous spaghetti. Not to indulge. He, he, we, we should just follow Peter's word. It's the manner of life. And it is your experiencing the Lord. That married couples need to do this. Or at least they need, need to be aware of this. Husbands especially, but the wives also. You experience Christ for your spouse as well as for yourself. And what happens in you will affect the other party. 
And the more you go on, I mean deeply with the Lord, go on, the more that will benefit your husband. I have the concern that when having personal time with the Lord and trying to be silent before him, I'm sometimes just going deeper into my soul. Is this a legitimate concern? If so, how do I avoid this? It surely is a legitimate concern. Going deep in your soul is always a legitimate concern. If you're, you're trying to be quiet and waiting on the Lord and not much is happening, then you need to do something objective. Read the Bible, sing a hymn, read the ministry, do something objective that will occupy your mind. But don't just sit there in silence and then sink into the abyss of yourself. You know, if you're supplied, if you're supplied, then you may have the sense, Lord, I can be still before you. But that is not an empty stillness. You're, you're contacting the Lord, you're beholding him, you're receiving his dispensing. But if, if this being silent thing isn't working out, then just do something objective. That will bring you out of this condition. How can my relationship with the Lord become more loving and trusting? Um, okay, on the loving part, uh, th- th- this is nice to respond to. You need to Take the way of 1 John 4.19. More loving. That verse says, we love because he first loved us. So let him love you. Just present yourself. I, I don't know how deeply assured the saints are. I had my own struggle with this. You know, we can say God so loved the world. Well, I'm there as one seven billionth. So I guess I'm, I'm an object. Christ loves the church. But Paul could say he loved me. And this needs to become very real and solid in us. Amen. Let the Lord love you. Let him minister to you. Let him serve you. So this will help with the loving part. Uh, with the trust matter, uh, this involves uh, a few things. On one side, the Lord has to touch everything we trust in, especially ourselves, other than the Lord. He needs to shepherd us in anything that weakens our trust. But mainly, our contact with him, our being infused with him, our experience of him will cause us to realize he is the most trustworthy person in the universe. We can commit our whole being to him. Don't try to generate these. And it's not going to help if you beat yourself up for not having them. That will not impress the Lord and it won't help your state of mind. 
Just be honest. Lord, my trust is weak. My love is feeble. It's fickle. All of these things are a fruit of the Spirit. You let the Spirit work in you. It's the Spirit that brings forth all of these virtues. After two weeks in kindergarten, my daughter came home and said to me, with innocent amazement, I learned that girls can marry girls and boys can marry boys. We were in public, and I was never, I was quite unprepared to deal with this comment, so I dismissed it with an oh, really, and moved on. As a kindergarten teacher myself, I knew that this was coming soon. I myself have even had to outwardly accept this for the sake of my students, the children of those whose families are just sweet, innocent kids. So teachers have to reinforce with their students that all kinds of families are acceptable. My question is, how do we address this with our five-year-old? Do we, at this early stage, more specifically, how do we speak the truth to her but tell her not to talk about our beliefs at school. In society today, this would be equivalent to discrimination. Okay, it, it's already reached her. So it's not too, soon, not too soon to talk to her. It's already reached her. And you, you just tell her that what you heard today is the way many people think. And that's the way many people think, and many people live that way. So you, you need to understand that's how many people think and how they live. And even that's how your teacher may think. But you need to understand something else. That, that is not the way God thinks, and that is not the way we think, and that is not the way we believe. And that's not the way we practice. So while you're in school, you should understand and learn about how other people think. But do not take that as how you yourself should think. Because that comes from the enemy of God. Now, I would be inclined to do one more thing. Not as a crusading parent. But I would like to find out, is this really the curriculum? Is this really the, the way the school district is going? Or is this teacher inculcating something of her own? Now, if this is part of the curriculum, maybe I won't challenge it, but I want to be clear. If it's this teacher's private view, I don't want my child exposed to that. Just as I don't expect to impose my private views on anyone else's kid. But it, it's not too soon because it happened. And in California now, it's, what, it's going to be law. And our, the strange governor, what a strange state. You know, you elect actors and people like Jerry Brown again. It's, I, I, don't know, I don't know if I could possibly send my kids to public school. I just don't know if I could do it now. I don't know what I would do. I'm glad that my grandkids are at Acacia Wood. <laughs> Praise the Lord for Acacia Wood. <laughs> but you have to just 
face it, not to put your daughter in between, but to let her... Right now, she is going to believe you more than her teacher. And she's going to take the way of her parents. Uh, I would just put this in her to reinforce this. And then pray earnestly that the Lord would keep her from the evil one and preserve her her whole life. Okay? I think we did it by 712. (laughs) Could we end with some offering, a few short prayers to cover our time and to thank the Lord? Amen. Amen, Lord.